Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations, book recommendation episodes, and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and endorse, and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. In 2023, I am adding a new segment to my Tuesday episodes called Read-Alike Requests. Listeners can submit a book they loved and tell me why they loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads. There is a Google form included in today's show notes. I would love for you to send in a request. If you love to read, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including bonus episodes, and early reads and pre-pub author chats. For February, Lauren Willig's new book is one of my selections, as well as a likely story, a debut by Lee Abramson. The link to join that is in the show notes as well. Today, Audrey Burgess joins me to discuss The Minuscule Mansion of Myra Malone. Audrey writes novels, humor, satire, and essays in Richmond, Virginia. Her stories have been published in McSweeney's, Pithead Chapel, Into the Void, and elsewhere. She was raised in Arizona by her linguist parents, which is a lot like being raised by wolves, but with better grammar. She moved to Virginia as an adult, but still carries mountains and canyons in her heart. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now for a quick break. For the last year, I have been focusing more on my health and my eating habits. In connection with that, I have started drinking AG1 in the morning. I first gave AG1 a try because I needed more energy. Since drinking AG1 daily, I have definitely felt more energized. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water, once a day, every day. I know with AG1, I'm giving my body high-quality nutrition. Every batch of AG1 goes through a rigorous testing process, so you know it is safe. And AG1 ingredients are sourced for absorption, potency, and nutrient density. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and I am really happy to have them sponsoring my show. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. That's drinkag1.com slash thoughts from a page. Check it out. And now for my read-alike request segment. For this segment, listeners submit a book that they loved and let me know why they loved it, and I suggest several similar books for them to read. While every book is unique and stands alone, certain elements of books we really love stick with us, and that is what I want to tap into. The aspects of the book that appealed to the requester and to focus on finding those elements in other books. Today's request is from Kristen, who is at K2Reader on Instagram and she selected The Light Pirate by Lily Brooks Dalton. 
a book about trying to survive after catastrophic climate change. I have not read The Light Pirate, but I am a huge fan of the growing climate fiction genre. Kristen liked the book because she fell hard for the characters, but she also loved the message saying climate change is real. This book might be set in the future, she says, but sea levels are rising, hurricane season has become very unpredictable, and Florida may very well not be the Florida we know all too soon. My first recommendation as a read-alike for The Light Pirate is The High House by Jesse Greengrass, a character-driven story which follows four individuals trying to survive after a large environmental disaster. The two pairs learn to live together in the wake of tragedy, dwindling supplies, and an uncertain future. It is a quietly powerful novel that focuses on how people will cope with climate change, the same issue Kristen found compelling in The Light Pirate. I read this book a while ago, and I still think about it regularly. My next recommendation is going to be two books by the same author, Waiting for the Night Song and The Last Beekeeper by Julie Carrick Dalton. Waiting for the Night Song published a couple of years ago and follows Katie Kessler, an entomologist and forestry researcher, focused on studying the pine bark beetle in New Hampshire. Her goal is to prove that the beetle is present in the state and destroying pines, similar to the devastation it wrought in California and Colorado. Dalton creates a magnificent sense of place, bringing the New Hampshire forest to life, while tackling tough and highly relevant issues such as the pine bark beetle and climate change. Her new book, The Last Beekeeper, comes out this March and is set in a post-apocalyptic world where honeybees are presumed extinct and how that extinction affects humans. It is a thought-provoking page-turner that is based on a premise similar to The Light Pirate's premise. Both of Julie's books contain mysteries as well, which propel them along. The last books I am recommending as read-alikes to The Light Pirate are the Alex Carter Mysteries by Alice Henderson. There are three books in the series, and Alice is working on the fourth. Each book focuses on a different endangered animal and how and why the animal is endangered, including climate change, but the books are mysteries as well. The series continues to gain traction with each new installment, and Alice does a stellar job of creating a compelling mystery while keeping the focus on environmental issues and climate change. Before I finish, I want to mention one more book. As I referenced earlier, environmental stories are intertwined with climate fiction because the two are so interconnected. A title that addresses both is Once There Were Wolves by Charlotte McGonaghy, a favorite for me in 2022. So I recommend this one as well. Thanks, Kristen, for submitting a read-alike request, and I hope you enjoy these recommendations. And now, on to my conversation with Audrey Burgess. Welcome, Audrey. How are you today? I am doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here because I read your book many months ago, and I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. I finished it in less than 24 hours, and I can't wait for your pub day to arrive so I can be telling everyone I know to read it. Oh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into questions and talking about the behind the scenes and all of that, will you give me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. So the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone is actually named for the blog that the main character, Myra Malone, maintains, although she was kind of cajoled into maintaining it by her best friend, Myra actually has been largely housebound since she was a small child, and she has basically made it her life's work to sort of uh, curate this minuscule mansion, is what she calls it. It's a, it's a doll's house, but she would absolutely reject the idea that that is what it is. And she's been curating that since she was a small child and writing stories about it. And her best friend finally convinced her to put some of those stories and those pictures and those rooms online. After she did that, it went hugely viral. 
because it turned out there was a pretty rich vein of people who were really hungry for contents about miniatures and handcrafting, and it sort of fit right into that niche. And not long after it goes viral, Myra finds out that the house where she actually lives, where the mansion is, is about to be foreclosed upon because her mother has a little bit of a retail addiction. And so uh, her best friend, again, kind of comes up with an idea that since this site has become so popular, they should have an essay contest. And the prize will be to be able to decorate a room in the mansion, which Myra's not really a fan of, but decides to go along with. But not long after that happens, they receive an essay entry from a gentleman across the country named Alex Rakes, who basically says, this house that you have online is my house. This is where I live. You've got everything in it, including right down to my bedroom furniture. How can that possibly be true? And so the book kind of unwinds how that could have happened. Well, I had so much fun reading this. And the entire time I was reading, I wanted to ask you how in the world you came up with all of these fabulous ideas. It's just so creative. Well, thanks. It actually is kind of a funny story. I actually, this was my second novel that I wrote. Prior to the pandemic, I actually wrote and had been querying a different novel that was kind of a dark, twisty mystery. And I was in the process of querying that. And at the same time, I was starting to publish a lot of short pieces. And most of those short pieces that I was publishing were in humor and satire. Uh, I was showing up in McSweeney's and some of the other online sites like the Belladonna and Slackjaw. And as I started to kind of build that audience and, and query this very different book, I was getting feedback from folks that were saying, well, this is, this is nice, but this isn't really consistent with the audience that you're building as a, as a writer. At first, I kind of resisted that. And then I thought, you know, well, I'm seeing the disconnect between, all right, really funny, you know, little parenting pieces and uh, slices of life humor. And then, all right, so the book, you know, open your mind real wide, heroin epidemic, deadly forest fire orphans, foster care system, you know, it's a laugh riot. It's really, you know, and it just, and I find it finally dawned on me that maybe it was time to, to table that book for a little while and come up with something else. And since the pandemic had started, I was kind of looking for a lighter hearted writing experience too. And so one of the ideas that I had as I was kind of scrolling endlessly through social media, like the rest of the world, I started seeing that among all of the hobbies that people were developing, you know, for the first time, build, you know, baking sourdough and banana bread and starting gardens. And I did, I dabbled with all of those too and was horrible universally at all of them. But I also saw some of, especially some of the writers that I followed were buying these kits online for, for miniature rooms. And the one that I actually saw most frequently was called a book nook. You can actually find these online. And they're these kind of little libraries that are designed to slot between two books on your bookshelf. And some of them are actually really elaborate. They have, you know, lighting and little fake fireplaces. And they're just, I just loved them because I've always loved miniatures. I've always been the type of person that if I saw a dollhouse or miniatures in a museum or a library, I will literally stay there looking at every single little label on every single box of chocolates until somebody drags me away. And so originally my idea was, well, I'll write, I'll write a lighthearted romantic comedy. And, and 
unlike 99% of what I write, the title actually occurred to me first. I, I had the idea for Myra Malone and the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone right away, but it was going to be a partly the same situation where, you know, website with this miniature mansion goes viral and then it's a meet cute and a romantic comedy and a little bit of a, you know, Hallmark Christmas movie. But instead, what happened is as I started drafting, and this has happened to me before with shorter pieces and a little bit with my my prior book too, I got about a thousand words in and there's a scene where Myra is still a little girl and she's setting up the the mansion, the minuscule mansion in her attic, and she's leaning down to adjust something in the library and she sees a mirror over the fireplace and her own eye winks back at her in the mirror and she doesn't know how to wink. And as soon as that sentence and that scene occurred to me, I I went, "Oh, this is this is not this is not a romantic comedy. This is something very very different." And I knew right away what it was going to be. I knew who had winked, I knew what had happened. And from that moment on, it was just trying to keep up with the pace of what the characters were telling me happened. And they were very very emphatic about where that story was going and how it was going to end up. And so it really was one of those experiences where I just had to kind of buckle up and keep up with what they were telling me. I think that's so cool because I've never experienced anything like that. But authors say that all the time, that it's almost like these characters are just talking to them and telling them what to do. And that is so cool. I would love to experience that sometime. It's a lot of fun, although they actually, (laughs) my husband and kids tease me about this all the time because I'll I'll be describing something to them about, you know, well, and they're telling me that this is what happened. And they're like, it's all you. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> these people are in your head. They are in your head. You're like, no. Right. I'm like, you, yeah, that's that's not, they, they don't seem to think that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, they're telling me stuff. It's not me. I don't right. have many personalities. I actually am meeting these characters. Right. Well, I am not one that would probably sit down and put together these kits because I don't think I have the patience for it. But I love miniatures, and I've always enjoyed the Thorn Rooms at the Art Institute of Chicago and visiting them. I lived in Chicago for college, and I always went and looked through them and enjoyed them so much. And this story reminded me somewhat of that. Well, it's really funny you should mention that because I actually had never heard of the Thorn Rooms until after I wrote the book. I was actually, I'm in a writing group with a, a group of other uh, you know, novelists, aspiring novelists. And one of them was beta reading this book after I finished it. And he sent me an email saying, it, this really reminds me of this museum that my father used to take me to when I was a child. And he sent me a link. And first of all, I was my first thought was, oh my gosh, I've got to go to Chicago and see this. <laughs> but the next thing I found really interesting was in the in the description of the the woman who actually originally designed those rooms. She also really rejected the idea that dolls needed to be there or that it was that they were dollhouse rooms. And she did it for exactly the same reason that Myra did that 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 was almost a a dismissal of what the what the spaces were supposed to represent, which was a, a real reproduction of what those rooms would have been like if someone were to walk in and live in them. And uh, so you could kind of picture yourself in that space. And so I found it really cool that this character trait that had kind of occurred to me or or rather been told to me very clearly by Myra, who kept saying, don't call it a dollhouse. See, there I am talking about someone <laughs> in my own head again. 
that it turned out that was actually representative of someone who was a real miniaturist. So I thought that was kind of cool. I think that's cool, too. And I mean, I will start at one end and work my way around in the Thorn Rooms, and then I'll just get finished and I'll start again because there's so many details and so many little things. And there's actually a great middle grade series that is set in the Thorn Rooms. And my middle daughter loved them. I think the 67 Rooms is the first one, and there are at least two or three more. And so then when she was old enough, I took her to Chicago and she thought it was so much fun to see them after reading about them for so long. These kids, I think they shrink down and then they spend time in the Thorn Rooms. It's really well done. Oh, how cool. I'll have to check that out. I have a I have a middle grade reader daughter right now. So I would I think she'd really find that cool. Yeah, they're very, very fun for that age. But the other part that I just really liked was that Myra was doing this blog and then it just took off and that people all over the country were trying to send in essays and were wanting to be able to design one of the rooms. I just thought that was a really fun part of the story. And I really, that's another one of those things that I, I came up with the idea and my, I remember when I was describing it to my husband, he said, I don't know if, if anything like this would ever really go viral. Is this something that people really look at? And as it turns out, because again, after I wrote the book, I started, I had always, you know, like I said, I would see these, certainly the algorithm <laughs> served those things to me for a reason, you know, as something that I was interested in and followed from time to time. But I became a lot more, I really went down that rabbit hole a lot deeper after I wrote the book. And when I started doing that, it's really fascinating, these these miniaturist account, particularly on Instagram, the followings that some of these artists have and and how much their work gets shared and it's not just it's not just you know pictures it's video people you know one of the a couple of the accounts that i love following are actually miniature chefs like they they make little itty bitty like with little itty bitty fry pans and little itty bitty eggs and little cuts of meat and they and they put together actual tiny food and i just i i love it i just love watching it and i'm not the only one there's just a lot of people who who just watch it over and over and over again. I think it's kind of similar. It maybe scratches the same itch as some of those ASMR video, you know, just it's soothing <laughs> to watch. There's something deeply sheltering about details to me. There's something very, um, when you can immerse yourself in something that is richly realized, but also very, very small. For me, there's a comfort in that. It's it's almost like that sensation you seek when you're yeah, a small kid and you're looking for a secluded place to read. I used to make this little nook in my bedroom closet when I was a kid. And and it's funny, my my daughter actually does the same thing. But I, I think it targets that same kind of aspect of my personality that's looking for that kind of that well, refuge, that kind of shelter. Absolutely. And are you putting together some of these kits these days? I have not. So I am much like you. I do not. I I think I would get about halfway through those before I threw them across the room. That would be me. (laughs) I have a bunch of friends that really love them, but I just I like seeing the results. And actually, it's it's funny. One of the other rabbit holes I went down just recently, there was a video that went viral on Instagram and Twitter that was miniatures inside walnut shells. And it was Amazing. You know, these these very and again, libraries. There were a couple of libraries and little, you know, rabbit warrens and little, you know, animals and all sorts of different things. But I I immediately went, Oh my God, I have I have to find one of those. And so I went on Etsy and I found this 
artist in Sri Lanka who does these little walnut, what she actually had online was a, a, a walnut Van Gogh. It was Van Gogh's bedroom in Arles, a reproduction of his bedroom, three-dimensional, teeny tiny bed, teeny tiny little self-portrait of Van Gogh, teeny tiny little starry, starry night. And then Van Gogh himself with movable arms and legs standing on the other side. You can move him around from his bedroom and in front of this little cherry tree with little individually sculpted petals. As soon as I saw it, I fell in love with it for two reasons. One, oh my God, walnut shell. Two, I actually wrote a humor piece just a couple of months ago that was about Van Gogh. And as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, okay, well, clearly this this walnut shell is meant for me. So I have little pieces like that that I, you know, little, I've started acquiring miniatures, which I always tell myself that the worst thing you can ever do is tell somebody that you collect something. I used to tell people that I collected teacups. Right. You know, and then everybody who has a grandmother pass on, you get all the, so right around the time that I realized I had 180 of them, I thought, oh, okay, I no longer collect teacups. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you tell everyone that I need no more teacups. <laughs> right, exactly. But the benefit to miniatures is I, you know, I think the, I think I could hopefully have, have that happen a lot later because they're so tiny. You know, you can just tell yourself that you can collect a lot more of them. There's a lot more room for that collection. That's right. Well, I remember seeing during the pandemic on Bookstagram, and now I'm trying to think of who it was, someone who was making little bookshelves for people and you could pick the books you wanted in them and Christmas ornaments. Yes. And I, I thought, oh, that would be so fun to have. But then I got struck by which books would I pick because there are so many books I like. And so I kind of like hit a wall there where I couldn't decide which ones I would want. Now, of course, I could probably get three or four of them and just keep picking books. But I just got hamstrung with the which books would I pick. But I think that that's really cool. And I wonder if she's using a kit like that. I, you know, I don't know. I actually, though, I think I know there's probably more than one, but I, I think the one that I follow on Instagram is uh, Books by Britain, I want to say. That's it. Yes. Yeah. And so, and, and those I, I followed, started following because I knew a couple of authors who had gotten bookshelves done. And I, same thing for me. It's, you know, it's like trying to pick, you know, what, what, again, since I love details so much, how many details can I possibly cram into these bookshelves? And then they're going to look like my actual bookshelves at home, which are completely full of all sorts of detritus. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, but yeah, there's all sorts of little accounts like that, that do fascinating, you know, the, that make earrings or rings or lockets out of people's book covers and details or rocks. One of the others that I follow, they paint, they paint them on rocks. It's just, it's really great. And, and I think it's, it's also really a testament to how much those, those book covers are just works of art. And I just lucked out completely with my cover because I, it's, it's beautiful. And I actually just got my UK cover too. And it's the same thing, just absolute little works of art. The UK publisher, Pam McMillan, actually commissioned a miniaturist to make pieces of furniture from the book and put them on the cover. And it was really, it was amazing because, you know, you you, you have the picture in your head of what you've written, but it, to see them actually brought to life in 3D by someone who actually saw exactly what you had in your head, right down to my childhood bed, which made me burst into tears when I saw it. So it's, you know, it, I think that again, it's it's the detail, right? It's it's that same kind of thing that makes miniatures attractive. You know, that makes people gravitate toward book covers and things like that. It's just the art of those details. Well, I was going to talk about the cover a little later, but let's go ahead and talk about it right now because you brought it up. It's just beautiful. I mean, it was one of the things that caught my eye initially before I even read what the book was about, 
And I love the alliteration in the title, just all of it. I think the packaging is great. And now I can't wait to look up your UK cover. Yeah, it it actually just got posted last week. And I, yes, I totally, the um, cover that Berkeley put together that, you know, I've had, I've had friends that have gone through, you know, two or three different iterations of a cover. That cover was the very first one they sent me. And as soon as they sent it to me, I just went, this is, this is it. This is, I didn't know that was what was in my head until I received it. And one of the things that I so appreciated that they did so, so well, you know, it's a long title. And I was worried that because it was such a long title that it was going to make it hard to have a, a cover that that was really, you know, immersive. But instead they just made they made the title part of the art in a way that just I think really nests well with the themes of the book. And they also connected it so well to the design inside the book and the fonts that they used and a little bit of little flavor of art deco and and you know just really, really just so richly realized I was, I have just been hugely lucky with the artists that I've been able to work with so far. It's just been great. And I love the title page with the inside of the miniature mansion where you can glance at there. I started to say dollhouse, but then I'm like, I can't say dollhouse. (laughs) You can say dollhouse. She's not listening. Exactly. I'm like, okay, (laughs) sorry, Myra. But I thought, oh, that's so well done when they do all those little touches. And it's, it's just really great to see. Yeah, it it was really gratifying. Again, it was like one of those moments with seeing the miniatures from from Pam McMillan. It's just, you know, having something in your head that you weren't even entirely sure was there until you saw it realized on the page. And, and that was just, it was a dream come true. Well, switching gears to the format of the book, I mean, we're talking about the interior of the book already, but in terms of exactly how it's structured, did you always know that you were going to toggle back and forth in time? And obviously, we've talked about the blog. That was one of those things that came about. But how did you settle on the format? So I did always know that it was going to be multiple perspectives. I knew it was going to be at least two. And without getting too far into the details, some of the some of the additional expansion was was more of a surprise to me when I realized that there was there was a part that I wasn't going to be able to tell without adding one more perspective. But it was from the very beginning, I knew it was going to be two sides of the country. And it was two sides of the country because it was the two parts of the country where I have lived. I grew up in Arizona in about half the time in Page, which is right on the edge of Lake Powell in far northern Arizona, just south of the Utah border. And then in Flagstaff, which is a town near the Mogollon Rim. I don't actually describe it as Flagstaff, but it's kind of informed by Flagstaff and Payson and that kind of thing. Grandpa Lou's house is is ba- loosely based on an area of Arizona called Cottonwood on the Verde River. So those are all places that I grew up and that I spent a lot of time in growing up. And then when I was in my 20s, I moved to Virginia and started out in a town called Farmville, which is about an hour west of Richmond, which is where I live now and have lived for, gosh, about 20 years now. I still think of myself as an Arizonan, but I guess I may I may actually be <laughs> over time on Virginia to do that now. But those two settings were always, I always intended to have the book set in those two places. And there was really no way for me to do that without having the two perspectives. And so I did always kind of intend to to have those two tracks seemingly separate and then eventually kind of join up further down the line. 
I always enjoy stories that shift back and forth in time or from different perspectives. Did you find anybody in particular to be the hardest to write? I know they were talking with you and helping you write them, but was there anybody in particular that either gave you a little bit of trouble or you weren't sure about the voice or anything like that? I would say probably the hardest nut for me to crack was Ruth, Alex's father, because he is you know, it, it, when you have somebody who has a kind of a flat affect and, you know, I've, I've seen different descriptions of one of the most fascinating things to me about since the galleys have been out is seeing, seeing people's reaction or hearing people talk about what they, what they responded to or what they didn't respond to. And Ruth in a lot of ways is, is kind of a, he's kind of a flat character. He doesn't not, not in terms of flat, I don't mean not in terms of fully realized, but his, his affect, the way he interacts with the world is not as friendly or as open as most of the other characters in the book. And so for for me, kind of unwinding how that could have happened was part of what I I want I didn't I didn't want him to just be that way for no reason. But he was the one who's whose head and and you don't get into into his head until much much later in the story. And that's one of the reasons why he was he was a much tougher nut to crack. I can see that, and I can understand his history and how it got him to where he is. I don't want to spoil anything, but that makes sense and that it might be a little bit harder to translate him onto the page. Yeah. Well, what would you say the hardest part about writing the entire book was? You know, I, I actually had learned a lot of lessons from from writing my first book, which was also a dual timeline, dual setting novel in which... After I got through my first draft and gave it a few weeks before I went back and picked it back up again, I I think it took me the third or fourth draft to realize that an integral plot point, which hinged on a pregnancy, required the pregnancy to be 22 months long. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They were an elephant. Yes. And so I, I started, you know, when I, when I realized when I started drafting Minuscule Mansion that it was going to be kind of that same structure, there were a lot of lessons that I had already learned about making sure to kind of keep that internal consistency. And so, so that was something that I, I really had to pay a lot of attention to. The books that I've written since I wrote The Minuscule Mansion, I, I wrote largely from beginning to end. I did not do that with this book. There was a lot more jumping around. And I think one reason for that is that the scenes that occurred to me, I don't know how else to describe, they, they occurred to me in full color. They, they were just instantly realized and I, I didn't want to let them grow stale. And so I have this this technique that I use where I put a bracket into my manuscript and I don't and I and I'll close the bracket wherever I know I need to go back so that when I'm when I think that I'm done I can go back and find all of those brackets and say oh right that's a hole I didn't fill in yet. So I did that a bit with this book because there were there were scenes that as they happened I said oh no I want to I want to get to that I I hear those characters talking to me I want to make sure to get that out on the page. And then once I had that all, once all those moments were kind of accounted for, I kind of dumped them all into a new document and started reorganizing to make sure I didn't wind up with some of those holes that I, that I learned the hard way the first time. And so that, that was kind of, kind of the way it came together with this book. 
It wasn't completely linear, so then you had to go back and make sure you didn't have a 22-month pregnancy. Correct. Something else that would not work right once you had it all reading in, a, in order. Yes. So you have other books you've written? Yes. So I actually, um, since I wrote Minuscule Mansion, I've actually written three other books. One of them is excerpted at the back of the Minuscule Mansion. So the the next book is also a standalone, also uh, magical realism, and it's called A House Like an Accordion. And it's very different from the Minuscule Mansion, although it does, as I'm recounting that, also have a house in the title. Um, but <laughs> but it is, uh, it's a different book. And, and so I wrote that when I was about uh, probably about 40%, 50% of the way through writing that book at the time that that I wound up working with Berkeley on the Minuscule Mansion. And so so they went ahead and picked that one up too and printed the first chapter of it in in the mansion. And then I've uh, I've since completed two other books that are uh, are still kind of under wraps, but I'm really looking forward to sharing more information about those soon. That's so exciting. So will your second book come out with Berkeley next year? Right now, the uh, anticipated release date is in 2024. Okay. Well, I just missed that there was that excerpt there, and I just looked in the back of mine, and it is there. So I can't wait to read it now, and I will look forward to that next one when those galleys come up. Hopefully, they'll come up as early as these galleys did. I hope so. That would be great. Yeah, I've actually uh, just finished edits, and so hopefully, hopefully it'll start making its way out into the world before too long. That's very exciting. The other thing that I really loved about your book was the idea that while Myra is working on this miniature mansion, that it is actually a real house somewhere else. How did you come up with that idea? So actually, that's kind of interesting, too. The, the full-size mansion was first. I realize that doesn't make sense because it's called the minuscule mansion of Myra Malone. But in my head, I had what that, what that mansion was, largely informed by some of the old estates here in Richmond and around uh, in central Virginia. And a reason for that, I think it's largely, first of all, I've always loved old houses, old structures, architecture. And I think one reason for it is because I grew up out West where everything is, you know, much newer, right? You know, you didn't have old cemeteries, old stone houses, things that had been there for a really, really long time. And of course, then you go overseas and you realize long time is, is relative even more. But I think that part of it was because when I moved to Virginia, just being able to walk around and look at you know old houses and old architecture, I had a pretty clear picture in my head of Alex's house, of the, of the mansion before it ever shrunk down in the book. And so I think that that linkage between the two, between the between the minuscule mansion and the mansion mansion, was kind of inherent from the very beginning. It because it it the minuscule mansion occurred to me after the the larger structure, and so they they were always kind of inextricably linked in my head, much as they became linked in the story. If that makes sense, it does. And it's one of those things that I'm not really one of those people who spends a lot of time thinking about you know, magical type things and things like that. But things like this just totally intrigue me. Like, how cool would that be to have this minuscule mansion in Arizona that mimics this estate in Virginia? Like, just those concepts are very cool to me. Yeah, and I, th I think it's partly, uh, you know, I, I've, I've joked with my mother about this because they're, you know, she she is almost always my first beta reader. 
And I will sometimes use terms in my books that she'll line through and 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 kind of write a note in the margin that says, nope, builder's daughter. Um, because they're term- I was raised by my most of the houses that I lived in gro- growing up were either entirely built by or largely renovated by my dad. My dad was a builder. My grandfather was a builder. And they were also academics. So they were a very strange mix of craftsmen and storyteller, which I think you kind of see a little bit in, in the book with Grandpa Lou also. And so I think that the fact that I grew up in spaces that my dad and, and mom had kind of custom designed for our life, those details, you know, I, when I was growing up, I had a, a house that they had built that was kind of built around, built as a shell around a mobile home. And so they had these little, you know, pocket details that you would have almost like in a, like in a ship. So like my, my bed was recessed into the wall in a niche and they, you know, little, little hidden places everywhere, little pass through windows to let light in uh, to one side of the house from the other. And so those kinds of details are things that I think inform a lot about who I am as a writer now, because that's, that's kind of what I grew up with in, in terms of seeing those spaces designed and described by the folks that had put them together. Okay, that's fascinating. And I love that your mom is like, builder's word, builder's word. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the terms that I kept, that kept sneaking in was the term stick built, which, uh, which I thought was <laughs> something everybody used. But it, it's, it's something that as opposed to having something that's prefabricated, it's something that's built from scratch, you know, from, from sticks, from two by fours, from wood. And apparently that, that's, at least according to her, that is not something that is as well known as I thought it was. So she scratched it through wherever I used it. I would not have known that. I would have been like, what is stick built and had to go look it up. So yes, yes. So see, see, you're right. She's going to be really, when she listens to this, she's going to be delighted to hear that she was, she was right about almost everything. Well, not almost. She's right about everything always. I'm sorry, mom. I love you. You're right. <laughs> and that's what a mother loves hearing. You're right. Yes. You know, those are wonderful words. <laughs> it's on tape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lasting forever. <laughs> well, I could talk with you all day. But I know we don't have time for that. So before we wrap up, will you let me know what you've read recently that you really liked? Oh, sure. So, and I'm sure this is not unique to me among writers. I have an endlessly growing TBR pile just because I have, I follow so many writers and and there are always, you know, new stories all the time. So, and one of the other things that I do, and I don't know if this is just me, when I'm in the middle of drafting a novel, I usually try not to read anything modern because I don't want to risk anything that any voice kind of creeping into to the story that I'm telling. And so so when I'm drafting, I'm usually reading something. In fact, the last the last book that I read while I was in the middle of drafting the book I just finished was Edith Wharton's uh, The Age of Innocence, which I've, I've read a few times. It was really applicable to the project I was working on because it was so tied up in high society and, and unspoken significant rules. Um, social rules. But once I finished drafting that book, I was finally able to start chipping away at at my TBR pile of of more recent books that had been building up over time. And I tend to read books simultaneously. So I had two that I was reading at the same time. One was uh, Helene Wecker's Hidden Palace, The Hidden Palace, which was the sequel to The Golem and the Ginny, which I just adored. I just and I and the sequel was excellent too, just the really skillful, immersive 
world building. And, and again, I'm, I'm a sucker for details. So just the, the details of the craftsmanship and, and also the human relationships and the non-human relationships and the sense of otherness and loneliness were just really, really great. And then at the same time, I was reading uh, Katie Gutierrez's More Than You'll Ever Know, which was fantastic. It's one of the most propulsive reads that I've that I've read in a really long time. It just drove me straight through and kept me guessing until the very last page. It was really, really another one of those really well-layered stories. And I just couldn't wait to see how the puzzle pieces came together. And um, then I just started a book called New to Liberty by Demisty Bellinger, who is a writer that I'm mutuals with on Twitter and who is also just an amazing poet. And she, uh, her first book is, it's a, it's a multi-perspective book. And so far, and I just, I just managed to get into it a few days ago and I'm really enjoying it. She's really masterful with her characters and they pull you into the story. You really feel like you're just sitting right there on the car seat next to them. And her settings are really richly realized. So I'm really enjoying that so far. And I'm, I'm sure I will enjoy it right right to the end. I'm just really thrilled to be able to read some books that I've that I've had on my nightstand for a while waiting for me to turn my attention to them. Well, and I hear authors say what you were talking about all the time in terms of not wanting to read something remotely similar to what they're writing because they don't want any ideas right. or anything to seep into their work. And I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. It definitely, it's, it's something that I, and it also just, to me, it helps kind of keep, uh, keep the story I'm telling completely separate from, from anything I might be reading or, or like you said, any ideas, but also just, I think that having, there's a little bit, I've had some folks tell me that there's a little bit of old fashionedness, uh, for lack of a better term to, to the way that I write. And I think that's why I think it's because I, I tend to, I was, I was raised by, you know, English teachers. And so I have a lot of, I read a lot of old literature and I think that, and that's what I tend to turn to when I'm, when I'm in drafting. And I think that, that, that little bit of, I don't know, fustiness sort of (laughs) works its way into, into what I write for better or for worse. I don't think I really noticed that. I really liked your writing and I liked the way the story was told, but it wasn't like it was something that I thought, oh, this isn't a present day story or isn't told like other authors tell present day stories. Well, good. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Well, Audrey, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This has just been delightful. I've had so much fun talking to you, and thank you so much for taking the time to read my book, and and, uh, and I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. I really appreciate all the time you spent talking to me. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, Please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. 
consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 